Right, let me start this morning. We're doing a little Christmas series here on the way to Christmas, and we are studying some things in the scriptures leading up to this event. We've called this series Hope Incarnate, celebrating the fact that hope came to us in the form of a man who was born in a manger, and we know him as the savior of the world. But I, I want to preface this with a question. I've got a question for us this morning. Put that up on the screen. And I want you to ponder and consider for yourself personally that question that you're not seeing right now on the screen. It really is. There we go. go. Have you ever felt that your particular circumstances, you know, your setting of life, the things that make you uniquely who you are, simply cannot get you where you want to be in life? Or cannot make you who you hope to be. I just ponder this for a second. Because this is kind of why your life feels the way it does. This is why this morning you might walk in and you're not feeling really excited. You're not feeling like the future has potential in it. And I'm anticipating it. And maybe just life is feeling a little weighty, mundane, etc. Not enough, right? Life can often feel like the stuff in it is just not enough to take me where I want to be. Not enough resources, not enough talent, maybe not enough money, uh, not enough influence with the right people, right? Don't know the right people, never seems to be the right timing. Whatever it is that when you survey your life and you look for what you really long for it to be, we, we want our lives to be something. I don't think there's anybody in the room here who doesn't want their life to be something that matters and be something important and the sense that we have lived life well and it, and it meant something. But it's just really easy to feel like whatever's in place in my life, it can't get me there. It can't, it, it can't be the dream that I hope it's going to be. And, well, here's the challenge for us. You know, the God who created us, he calls us to live with him and relate to him and walk with him. And the Bible says this, the, the righteous shall live by faith. That we are called to a life that walks by faith. And we walk with God by faith. A God who is at work in these very circumstances that we sometimes feel like not enough. Not enough. My life isn't enough. But God is in this world with us. And he's at work in the settings of our lives. And how many of us have figured out that God doesn't always do things like we do? The script of our life doesn't always seem to follow a script that we would have written to take us where we hope that it's going to bring us. But the Christmas story has got some unique features to it. Last week we looked at this God who invades darkness. That the world can feel and seem very dark, a very dark place, and it is. And our personal world can feel that way. But last week we were introduced to the God who makes light to just suddenly dawn. Out of nowhere. Not because everything was favorably disposed to him coming. The world was hostile and dark. And yet God pierces into that darkness because that's what he is like. And you and I walk with that God. And today I want to introduce us to another thing that we observe just by reading from the Christmas story. That our hope comes from some humble places. Places that don't seem like, settings that don't seem like they're in any way favorable or conducive to produce in us the life that is really meaningful and purposeful and matters. But 
That's what God is like as well. God creates settings for our lives that it almost can look like there's no way anything good and great can come from this. And then right out of that setting comes the most glorious and greatest things that could ever exist. And nothing exemplifies that more than this passage in Philippians chapter 2. Now we are using the word incarnate to describe the incarnation. It's, it's the doctrinal study of the God who takes on flesh. And this passage, though it's not found in the Gospels and it's not a description of the manger necessarily, it is what we celebrate at Christmas. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. The Apostle Paul writing some 30 or so years after this birth in the main, or actually after the death and resurrection, says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in a as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's, let's pray for a moment. Boy, this is, this is a radical verse. This is a crazy verse. But this is a verse that reveals and describes who you are and what you are like. How different you are. Or what a distance you traveled from your greatness in glory. Your existence as the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. Who would be born in the form of part of your creation. And be found in humble, lowly places like mangers. And be obedient even to the point of death. Lord, this is so foreign to us. And yet, it is the means through which hope travels. And it finds us. And if we're going to have hope today, Lord, these things need to be in us as well. So help us, Lord, to see this. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a bit of a, a life advice moment here happening with the Apostle Paul. He's going to interact with us and he's going to say something here that says, hey, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there's this, this attitude that allows, empowers the Son of God to do something that is so counterintuitive, to abandon something great for something less. To abandon it and to travel into places of severe limitation, extreme poverty, a completely different setting, and the highlight of that setting ends in death. Right? This doesn't, this is not a good brochure, right? I mean, if you're the son of God sitting in heaven and somebody hands you this brochure for this destination, for this vacation package, this is not what you are eager to sign on for. But yet this is what God does. And, and here's what's amazing. Right? Hold on to these words. I think I stuck this in your outline there. Take note of this. The most important, most fulfilling, purposeful, meaningful, unrestricted life ever lived 
came forth out of the most humble of settings, circumstances, and postures. When God goes to work in revealing his kingdom, revealing his ways, accomplishing his purpose for every aspect of creation, certainly true here in the Son of God himself, but true for us as well, he scripts some very strange things to our ears. This is not what we would have anticipated God doing to give the most significant life ever lived, the most purposeful, the life that would accomplish the most, the greatest headlines that would ever exist are going to come from this setting that we're going to read about today. Wouldn't have been our plan, right? All right, let's traffic through a few verses. See, these are familiar Christmas story verses. And I just, I just want to do a little experiment with you. I want you to, you know, kind of like when you're doing one of those puzzles and the, and the you know, those of you who used to get newspapers, you'd get a puzzle. Remember that? You'd circle words. So you could do that when you actually held things. Um, just imagine with me right here. I want, you to, I want you to circle in these scriptures unusually humble elements. Right? Words that you don't find greatness in these settings. And we've read these stories over and over again, but but let's notice the humbleness of this moment that's created. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we're going to get introduced to a cast of characters here. Right? This, is, this is not, these are not incredible actors. These are not people who got a lead role. I mean, you, you should be asking the question, who? Mary? Joseph? Who? Never heard of them. Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we're going to have a setting now for this high drama. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it's written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from You shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Are you circling? There's some really unimpressive stuff in that verse. Luke chapter 2 verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the Hilton. I'm sorry, in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds. Really? These are an impressive bunch of folks, aren't they? They smell when you get around them. They've been out in the field. They haven't had a shower in a while. Out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right? This is a global, historic event. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Alright, if the angels don't show up in this moment and the chorus of heaven doesn't start singing, this is a really, really big moment done in a really, really small way, isn't it? I mean, look at the setting. It's not stadium seating. There's not, there's no police. I went to a graduation yesterday and the police were directing traffic and parking. Because there was a lot of people expected to be there. There's, there's no police here. They don't have overflow parking. There's nothing big going on here. And if, and if heaven doesn't take notice that this is really a big moment, nothing is taking notice that this is a big moment. And yet it is a big moment, isn't it? It's the biggest of moments. But these familiar Christmas story passages... What they all have in common is, strangely, that they describe this rather humble beginning of this great thing that God was going to do. I found this interesting little book I was looking through. William Johnstone was a, a chaplain in the Church of England in 1856. He wrote this about the Incarnation. He says, everything connected with this birth was humble and poor. It seems to have been an a special design of divine providence to teach us from this circumstance how sunken and degraded were the whole of humanity. Mankind universally were so bad that what was reckoned best by themselves was in reality the worst. In other words, they're not looking for what God might be doing because they're upside down in their definition. They're staring in great places. And they're going to miss what God is doing. Few of the great men of the earth possessed earnestness or humility or any other quality which God would approve. Princes, priests, doctors were too high in station to be related to him who was to make the last first and the first last. And even though here and there a Zacharias, a Nicodemus, or a Saul might be found, they were too much entangled with the vicious systems to which they belonged. Nothing could possibly convey a more striking rebuke of the complicated evils affecting mankind than the favor thus shown by God to a poor family settled in a village of no consideration in one of the most obscure provinces of the civilized world. The virgin took up her abode in a stable where cradled in a manger with the litter of cattle for a bed the baby was born who was to reform every social institution, change the face of the earth, and through whose working human wills should be recovered to the divine will and the image of God restored to sinful flesh. Listen, we're we're just not used to, as broken humanity, who's taken our cues and learning our lessons about greatness... From somebody out there who's teaching us, stare over here. Over here is greatness. Look over here. And yet you and I want to live great lives, don't we? I mean, we do. 
but we're being taught about where to stare to find the epicenter of greatness. What's going to give birth to greatness? Well, this is a weird place to stare, isn't it? All right, let me walk you through a few observations as we stare back into these Christmas passages. I'm just going to make some points and we'll support them by looking back at those scriptures we just read through. But these are the humble places out of which God brings the most important, fulfilling, purposeful life that would ever be lived. And I want you to escape this, right? So I want you to hear and listen for this. Because as we started with the question of, you know, looking at your own life, you probably have a list of reasons why, based on your own life experience, again, your resources, your background, the things that are going your way, you've got a long list of reasons as to why your life can't possibly land in a great and glorious place. Why you can't live the most fulfilling, utmost, most important, significant life that you've been called to live. Or can you? Well, it depends on how the righteous walk by faith, doesn't it? Where is your faith? Is is it in those settings and circumstances? Or is it in the God who is in those settings and circumstances? And there's a big subtle shift there in our minds and our hearts. What, What was the confidence of Jesus Christ to put on such a lowly humanity was the confidence he had in his Father. I can be in whatever circumstances and God will do what is glorious. He didn't need things to be a certain way. Otherwise, he'd have never left heaven. And he came here because he trusted his father. Here's some interesting elements to these passages. Number one, a little minority, non-empire race of people who are living under the shadow of the powers of the age is going to be the birthplace for hope. How strange, right? When you read these passages, there's a reason why Bethlehem gets mentioned so much. Because of its shock value. (laughs) It gets brought up like, where? Bethlehem, right? And you, oh Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why do you have to tell somebody that you're by no means the least? Well, because everybody thinks you're the least. That's why. So this location, the location of life here is the least. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So you have Bethlehem as this incredible location, not the best place to build your shop to do something great. Charles Spurgeon said, Observe here that when the Son of God was born into the world, it was in a very lowly village, the village of Bethlehem. Very naturally, the wise men supposed that the king of the Jews would be born in the palace, in the metropolis of the country, at Jerusalem. But it pleased the Lord that everything about Christ's birth should have the stamp of lowliness. Hence, Jesus was born of a lowly virgin and was but roughly cradled in a manger, and the village chosen as the place of his birth was Bethlehem. I remember, they, remember, it's very interesting here that however many wise men there were, we say that there's three, we don't really know, but let's just suppose there was three. They're the only three people who don't get shoved into this drama with awareness. 
which is a strange thing. I won't tell you who they probably were because they don't fit in our Christian uh, understanding of, of wholesome, godly people. They were like astrologers. That's kind of what they were. Uh, and they had read the stars and God had put a sign in the stars. And they came looking. You remember everybody, even the shepherds. I mean, wouldn't you go check it out if an angel showed up and there was a choir in the heavens singing and said, hey, go over there. And then the whole sky lit up and there was these voices that came from heaven. Wouldn't you go check it out? I give no credit to the shepherds. They were spooked. They got freaked out. I'd go see what that, the heck this was too. But the wise men come looking. But when they come looking, they don't come looking for Bethlehem. They come to Jerusalem, to the palace, to the place where kings should be born. And they have to be told, no, no, not here, Bethlehem. And into this lowly setting of Bethlehem, they come into a pluralized society, coming to look for a king who would be born, not king of the Romans, not king of Egypt, not king of one of the superpowers in the world, but the king of Israel. Who? Israel. Now, you and I are very familiar with Israel because we read the Bible. But this is what God says about Israel. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is how Israel gets its headlines. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Right? The plan of redemption, the, the gospel is set into the setting of this nation called Israel. And the origins of this nation, of all the nations to pick. This is not an impressive bunch of people. And you watch the land that they live in change hands over and over and over again for greater empires that come in and shove them to the side one time after another. I mean, these guys, this, this is sort of like, you know, you know, you're setting your hopes on a gold medal on the Jamaican bobsled team, right? This is, this is not going to turn out well, right? I mean, it's like, well, who even knew there was this place called Jamaica? It's a tiny little island floating in the Caribbean. And who knew they had a bobsled team, for goodness sake? But they're going to win the gold medal. We just know it, right? This sounds rather naive, isn't it? And that's what it felt like to the people. But this is who God chose to reveal his great purpose through. Second, this setting is a setting of a lowly, average family. Right? How strange. If your hope is to accomplish great things in the hall of humanity that shape the future of this world, you're going to entrust this to who? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, they're famous, aren't they? They weren't in this moment. They became famous, which is an interesting thing, right? God can bring fame in the strangest of ways. You and I remember these people. They are special to us. They were nobodies to these people. As a matter of fact, they just didn't fit the profile of somebody being entrusted with this great, enormous task to form a family setting for the Savior of the universe to grow up in in order to serve all of humanity. 
Right? You remember this passage in Matthew 13. Uh, this family's a, a head scratcher when Jesus is doing all these great things and there's this talk that he's somebody great. Greatness has shown up. And they can't get that, right? The crowds don't get it. In Matthew 13, it says, wait, is not this the, the carpenter's son? Uh, is not his mother Mary? Uh, are not his brothers James and John? I went, to, I went to grammar school with these dudes, man. I know his sisters. And they took offense at him. Why would you take offense at him? Because he was nobody special. Just from some boring family in a boring town. Nothing impressive. He's the carpenter's son. And don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with being a carpenter. But nothing impressive about being a carpenter either. His dad was just this blue collar laborer who showed up in your house when the bricks fell off the wall. And he worked with mortar a little bit. and Put it back together. Put a roof on for you. And took an order to go work with some wood and make a harness for your ox so he could pull something in your garden. That, that's who his dad is, right? This, this is not an impressive setting. In the Greco-Roman world, most would have regarded a person in such a craft as uneducated and uncouth. The skillful artisan who works with his hands is commended, but it is assumed that his business keeps him from ever becoming wise like the scribe. The scribe has greater leisure and can devote himself to the study of the law to gain greater wisdom. This is the household that Jesus grew up in. This is a, this is a helpful word for young people. Right, young people, you, you look at your life and you think, what's the setting of my life? And can I draw a trajectory line from here to greatness? Can, can, I, can I get to greatness from here? Right? And, and you are born into a particular family and your particular family doesn't have headline features to it. Right? Your dad's a carpenter. You're not one of those families that has the first and the best of everything. It's more than likely Jesus didn't wear designer sandals. I mean, I'm just guessing. He probably was not the first guy in the neighborhood to get an iPhone upgrade and run around and show everybody. He probably didn't get his first horse when he was 16. Um, he was a carpenter's son. He lived a meager life. There wasn't anything extraordinary about his existence and what he was able to do. But can you stick with me and recognize it's that life that is going to be the most significant life ever lived. Apparently, he didn't need his dad to have a massive income so that he could go to private schools and be educated in particular ways and particular places so that then he could have a trajectory to greatness. Right, this is upside down, isn't it? And listen, you can be a young person and you can totally lose sight of the fact that it is God who brings your life into purpose and meaning. It's not your mom and dad. Now, I know that's who you live with, but this, this story of Jesus Christ illustrates out of these humble settings come the most significant life that could ever be lived. You want to live something significant? Well, follow and model the trust that Christ had to be in the most humble of settings with a dependence upon God to turn your life into something that matters. Third, this humble setting was a setting that is unprepared and uninterested and unwelcoming. How strange this massively important event is treated with such insignificance. 
Right? I, I, don't detach yourself from this for a moment, right? Because sometimes your life is being treated like it's insignificant. The events of your life, the stuff that's going on, there's no crowd standing around. You're not getting the attention that you feel like, I I should be getting more attention. That is what you're looking for to validate whether you're living a significant life or not. But, you know, in this setting, it's interesting how insignificant this event is. Like as I said, if you don't freak out the shepherds, they're not showing up. But they show up. The magi see us sign in the heavens, and they show up, and there's your guest list. That's it. Nobody else is showing up. You know what's really interesting and puzzling is the Magi show up in Jerusalem, ask around the people who know, where would we find the birthplace of the king, the coming king, the long-awaited king? And they tell them where to find him in Jerusalem, and then none of them go out to look for him. Does that find you interesting? But this, this is the height of religion. Don't, don't put yourself too far out of this context. Where you point people to things that you don't pursue. That's painful, isn't it? I mean, that's not, I mean let's get real here, right? Let's get real here. All right, we run around telling people, oh, the Bible, the Bible, read the Bible. You should read the Bible. We give Bibles away. We're going to give some Bibles away tonight. You give Bibles away. You recommend that they read the Bible. Do you go out to Bethlehem yourself to seek the king? Right, we're, not, we're not beyond some of these characters and folks in this story, are we? But you know what, what ends up happening in that moment in this moment where there's no fanfare, there's no attention, the world doesn't stand in line, the world doesn't stand around your life and go, hey, everybody come look. Look at the life being lived by so-and-so. Look how impressive, look how rewarding, look how it's affecting everyone. No, no, those around you, the cast of characters around you are probably like the cast of characters around Jesus. They're into their own thing, man. And you're only going to show up on their radar if you stand in their issues. Other than that, they don't even notice you. They don't know what's going on with you. And so are are you going to be bound to them to figure out whether or not you are living a life that matters? Because you're waiting for the applause of men to stand in line to tell you you really are a significant person and you really matter and you've done something that matters. And God is at work amazingly in a way in your life. Are you waiting for humanity to tell you that. Because apart from the choir of heaven breaking out, there's nobody celebrating the birth of the Son of God. The most significant thing happening on the planet nobody bought tickets for. But heaven knows this one spot matters the most. Listen, it might be significant for you and I. If we're ever going to live, have hope in this world, and live a life for the glory of God, we might need to listen for our applause to come from somewhere else. Right? How about this thought, number four? This setting was a life that was filled with average and typical everydayness. If you run the numbers and you look at the years and the days of Jesus' life, you will come up with something that sounds like this. 90%, 90% of the life of the Son of God didn't get posted on Facebook. 
Can you imagine? All right, here's the life of Christ. This is the most important person who ever lived. If there ever was a moment when reality TV should have been following somebody around, taping every moment, this is the life. And you get this little moment of his birth, situation leading up to it. He's born in a manger. Storyline's going to move on pretty quickly from there. You get a brief little snapshot of when he's about 12 years old. Nothing in between there, and nothing from 12 all the way to 30. And you get the last three years of his life and his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. So out of about a 33-year life, you get about three years. 90% of the life lived for the glory of God by the Son of God. Doesn't even get talked about. What do you think that life was like? I bet it was filled with everyday stuff. I bet he took the garbage out. I bet he got up in the morning and went to work. I bet he had relationships with the people around him. The easy ones, the hard ones. Right? He, was, he was doing life. That's what he was doing. Fulfilling the ultimate purpose for which God had assigned him to live in the most simplest of settings. Now listen, that, that doesn't work real well for us today. This needs to break into our world. This needs to break into our world. And if you're, if you're a young person especially, this has got to break into your world. Did I write this in your outline? If I didn't, I meant to. This is really hard to swallow in an age that promotes unbearably high expectations of daily euphoria and a powerfully embittering dose of entitlement. Mix those two ingredients together. Right? We have this unbearably high expectation of daily euphoria. Life is supposed to be one greater day after another. One unfolding event, one incredible experience, one new location, one amazing time, thrill upon thrill upon thrill, matched by greater thrill, ever increasing. And not only that, I deserve it. And you know how you know if you deserve it? Just figure out how angry at God you have been. If you can look through your life and you can find angry moments at God. Now that's like a symptom. If a doctor was sitting with you and he was trying to check you, there was some device he could hold up, he would want to find out how angry are you at God? How angry have you been at God? And our culture... It's got a lot of angry people in it. Christianity has a lot of angry Christians in it. Because our culture teaches us what greatness is. It teaches us that people should be paying attention to us. The world, people, God should be furthering our personal interest above all other matters. And when we survey our lives, instead of euphoria, we get common. I mean, hey, let's face it. Actually, we're, we're Americans. In almost every way that you can measure life, we are way ahead of the curve. We have more money. We have more leisure. We have more comforts. We have more entertainment. We have more options. Of a people who ought to be sitting down saying, God, we don't deserve all this. Lord, we do not deserve all this. 
Instead, we want to know where the refund line is. I need to talk to somebody. Is there somebody? Can, I get, can you get somebody in customer service down here? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't think you people are paying attention. Do you know what's going on in my life right now? This is how we approach God from all the things in our lives that just feel so mundane and common and everyday-ish. But here's the Son of God, right? Who comes and lives the most fulfilling and rewarding and purposeful and God-glorifying assignment and 90% of his life is common every day. And then the other 10%, how many of y'all want that? Oh, he was, he was popular, all right. Want to be popular? He was famous. Want to be famous? It's a head-scratcher as to how rejected he was. He was popular and famous amongst a small band of people. He was strange to the rest of them. So much so that the best thing to do with him is go ahead and kill him and get him out of the way. Heaven called that great. The earth doesn't call it great. Right? Note, the ultimate human being who lived the ultimate existence and achieved the ultimate that a life could ever achieve spent 90% of his life doing common, unnoticed, Facebook-boring, everyday stuff. And I say this, I'm not saying this to pick on young people. I grew up in my own world being a young person and had ideas framed and were influential in my own soul and they still influence me today. You're growing up around something that's doing that to you. And, you know, as generations have moved along, you know, my, my dad was, a, was from the generation that, that survived the Great Depression. And so the stories that he told me, he was born in 1918, so he lived through the 20s and 30s when you had nothing. And so greatness for him was just being able to get your family to a place where you survived and you weren't threatened to lose everything at any moment. And that's how he lived. But, you know, generations later, when you, by the time you get to baby boomer generations and Gen X and millennials, uh, that's not how life feels anymore, right? Life doesn't feel like surviving. It feels like it ought to be thriving and increasing at a greater and greater and greater rate. And our expectations are jacked up like crazy. And so, therefore, we're chronically disappointed. My dad was a hard guy to disappoint. He just, I mean, I think one of his favorite phrases was, well, we'll just do the best we can with what we got. I mean, he would say that over and over and over again. That's not what the world feels like today. Today, it feels like somebody's doing something wrong. Because it ain't going right for me. Well, is it supposed to go right for you? Well, yeah, yeah. And that's what we expect, and that's what we feel like. All right, last element, and this is the most mind-blowing of them all. This setting is a humble, confining body for an infinite creator. How strange is this? All right, we read past this part of the passage too quickly in Philippians. There's about to be this adjustment. There is this being who is God himself, who has always existed. He is eternal, so he knows nothing of the limitations of time. 
And there's this strange ability that you and I don't get, and this is why sometimes we, we fall short of analyzing God well, because he's got qualities about him that you and I have no idea how they operate. Right? So this God is eternal. He stands outside of time. Time is a created thing. And so in a strange way, God can put and does have his presence at the foundations of the world, at Genesis when things were created, at the cross of Christ, and in the heavenly Jerusalem, all at the same time. He, he is everywhere at the same time. Does that make any sense to any of us? Right? We have a past, a present, and a future, and everything's got to fit into some kind of paradigm like that. For God, everything exists. It just all exists without any boundaries of time. He's got no geographic boundaries. He is everywhere. And so when this God goes to put on humanity, do you understand how strange that is? Because once he does that, he's going to trap himself in a little baby body that's lying right there in a pile of hay in a manger. He is nowhere else but there. That's, that's different. And he is no longer standing outside of time. He is bound to time. He is walking through time. One sunrise at a time. He lives his life bound in that setting. The God who simply thinks and things exist and create. He just says, let there be light. And stuff just begins to appear like everywhere. He has, to, he has to have his mind tell his hands to pick things up and put them in his mouth because if he doesn't, his body is not going to continue to live. And he actually had to be trained to do that. He had to be dependent upon other people to change his diaper. Do you, I mean, does this freak you out? This is the God of the universe. This is the God whose existence is never mind-blowingly glorious. And he's that one in the manger right there, bound. Can you go with me? What a severe downgrade. You and I think babies are cute. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a baby is cute. Now, you know, I don't think you see it quite that way. When you're the eternal God, this is as severe of a downgrade as it gets. The creator is going to become a little piece of his creation and bind himself to those limitations and live the most glorious and fulfilling and purposeful life that ever existed. Does, does that teach us anything? about how we see life, how we do life, how we see our setting and our circumstances. I think I wrote this in your outline there. A little note says, you may have to live aspects of your life in a downgrade, a, a less than all that it could be condition in order to accomplish something that God deems necessary, important, and glorious. Listen, this is, you might want to read that a few times. Because at every moment, 
Every time we glance at a Facebook feed, every time we watch a TV commercial, every time we read a billboard, every time we lift our eyes to gaze at life, meaningfulness and greatness is being illustrated for us. And downgrade is never illustrated. Serving, sacrificing, giving away life, that's not, that's not what's illustrated. It is what's illustrated in Philippians chapter 2. So when you pull your life into this conversation, right? Fathers, what if greatness for you, the hope of God being at work in a setting for you means maybe a downgrade Maybe you're going to live life in some conditions that are less than what you'd hope for them to be. Less than the ideal, less than whatever you define to be great. It's going to be less than that. For some greater good, some ultimate meaningful reason that God has in store for you. I can remember... Growing up, and I was, I was probably two or so, my brother was about five, and later on in life, hearing about my dad making a decision. He had worked for a um, Fortune 500 minerals company, and he was a, an administrator, and he had this opportunity to take this big upgrade. He was going to get a promotion into this new facility and, and new position that at that point in his, his life, you know, he'd have been right about 50 years old. And this, this would have reframed the future for him and set him up, you know, towards the end of his career and the last 20 years or so. And he turned it down. He, he embraced a downgrade because he didn't feel like that move was good for his family. He said, you know, I, I don't think that location... And living there would, would serve my family. So I'm, I'm going to say no to that. I didn't know that when I was little. I learned it later on uh, about a decision that he had made. You know, there are other factors in your life that crawl into the conversation of what's good and what's great. Besides whatever it is that you had in mind. Can you imagine I mean, you and I don't think outside of our box real well. So you could, be a, you could be a mom or a dad. You've got children in your life. And, and you are living in an age that has been screaming for as long as you have been considering doing life that it advertises to you, you can have it all. You can have it all. It screams that at you. You can have it all. It tells you that over and over and over again. So you keep adding stuff into your life. And your life becomes more chaotic and more crazy the more you add. But you've been told you can have it all. You can have it all. And you're trying to have it all. And it's making you go nuts. You're losing your mind. And you feel guilty. And there's all kinds of swirls of issues taking place. And then you have a, you know, sort of a Oprah-ish mantra that, you know, the only thing worse, I don't know, maybe this is the worst, the worst sin you can commit is that you're not true to yourself. I don't know if there's a worse sin that you can commit. You know, if you're on Oprah, anyway. Um, 
What's wrong with dreaming your dream and living your life? I love that word, dream. It's a dream, man. I live the dream. I'm living the dream. It's all about the dream. Don't deny the dream. Live the dream. Come on. You can have it all. Okay, you put all this stuff into the lingo, and boy, it's hard to live in the downgraded version of what you got. But even if we didn't believe in God, can I just introduce human limitation to you? There's this thing called human limitation that basically says you can't have it all because you couldn't handle it all. You can't have it all because you won't get any more time and you won't get a bigger brain and you won't get more energy. You're just going to be you with too much. And then you're going to fumble stuff and break stuff and neglect stuff. And then that's going to have a whole wave of fears and emotions and concerns, etc., etc. So in a practical way, what comes into your life is the idea that, you know, you can, you can get married, you can have a family, you can have children, you can have lots of money, you can have a luxuriant life, you can travel a lot, you can afford this, you can do that, go there, you can have it all. And maybe the line needs to form at the end of the service for how mad we are at God that he hasn't been providing me with all that. Right? I mean, do, you, do you guys get this? That if, if, if we were to do an altar call at the ministry time at the end of the service in 1934, that's the height of the Great Depression. Do you understand people's mindset would be very different? You wouldn't have a lot of people who were just sort of this, you know, I've got a gazillion things, but it's that gazillion thing in one that I'm all mad at God about. i got a lot. And don't get me wrong. There's so much, but all I can see is what I don't have and what he won't give me. So I am mad at God, Keith. I'm glad you said that. If this is 1934, you don't sound that way. Why do you sound that way now? Because the world has taught you to expect things. And God is showing up in non-great ways like we're reading about here. Because God had a purpose for people to fulfill, as he did for his own son, that required a downgrade, a severe downgrade from what everything looked like should be great. And he lived in that. And listen, you can, you can be in your station in life, you can be single here and feeling like I'm living in a downgrade. You, you can be a, a married couple who has no children and feel like I'm living in a downgrade setting right now. You know, do you find it interesting, speaking of that category, in, in the Christmas story, if you've been reading it as we approach Christmas? You'll remember the story begins with another story. The story of another couple, of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And why are they famous? They're famous for being childless. They're an older couple who never had children. But it's through them that John the Baptist is going to come into this world, who is going to be the forerunner to go before the Son of God, to restore the hearts of people to the God who is sending his Messiah. There is this strategic individual who is going to come, and he's going to come to a people who have been living, their married life has been a downgrade. There's no way they got married with the high aspirations of being childless. That's not true today, and it definitely wasn't true then. 
But God was up to something. And God chose that setting to be a a humble setting, a setting of lowliness, a setting of less, from which would come something glorious for his own purpose in their lives. Do you see how this stuff becomes a little bit of a challenge for us? Because the righteous are going to live by faith. We're going to walk with this God. We're going to walk with this God. This peculiar God. He does stuff that's strange to us. But it might be very helpful for us to take some lessons from this Christmas story. That maybe God's not the one who has misplaced great. Maybe, maybe we've misplaced great. Maybe we don't know what to call great. Maybe, maybe we are waiting not for the applause of heaven to notice that we are living a great, glorious life. But the applause of a people who have a broken value system, who don't know what to applaud. They don't know what to call great. Right? Do you remember if I were to pull up some phrases from Jesus' life? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's not a great neighborhood. We don't know anybody who great who comes from Nazareth. That's not where you want to live. If you want a great life, you don't live in Nazareth because can anything good come from Nazareth? Or from a carpenter's son? Right? This is the world staring out at greatness going, no, he can't possibly be great. He, he can't possibly be something that we've all been waiting for. He's a carpenter's son, man. Clue in here, will you? He's just a common nobody. Where did they learn this stuff? Where did they learn to think carpenters couldn't be in the hands of God something incredible? Where did you and I learn this stuff? One of the greatest value moments of all time is the crowd gathered around the foot of the cross, staring up at him. These guys sounded so millennial when they said this. You're the son of God. If you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from there. And that's the ultimate cry of humanity, isn't it? Do it for yourself. Do it for you. You want to show us greatness, Jesus? You want to, you want to prove to us that you're great? Save yourself. That would be great. And he doesn't, does he? He does great in that moment, doesn't he? He chooses downgrade. He chooses obedience to the point of death. He chooses Philippians chapter 2, obedience all the way to the end to fulfill the purpose of God. Listen, an upgrade in that moment would have been for him to wheel some lightsaber heavenly sword, cut that stick that he was on in half and get down from there and beat some butt. And, you know, and the end of that story is, who's bad now, baby? Right? You and I go, you know, we go see a movie like that. It's like, yeah, man, that's great. You don't mess with that dude. That dude is bad, man. The guy who stands there and has his head chopped off voluntarily. Wow, I don't get that. That's, that was great. Listen, um, the world that you are a part of, it's a little confused about greatness. And it's taught you and I about things that are great. And if you and I follow that script, 
You know, we follow it when we thumb through image after image of what's worthy of celebrating and what should put your attention to and what should have been published and why did that person post that and that must be important as we take our cues from the world that we live in and none of us running out to Bethlehem to check out some nobody parents giving birth in something less than the Hilton Hotel or some swank place and location to a setting that can't possibly produce kings. None of us will ever clue in to run to that location to find greatness. Because what God was doing is glorious. It's better than great. It was glorious. It reveals something about him. But it is strange to us. And so when you and I stare at this Christmas story, and I want to I end by letting you watch a video. Some of you probably heard this song. The words are just capturing. It's Philippians 2 words. Against the backdrop of this God, this glorious God, eternal, majestic, speaking his creation into existence, governing every moment. become a little baby this is this is strange and yet he's going to save the whole world and that's how he's going to do it listen this is the God that you and I are trusting this is the God that you and I are walking in we, we need to get better informed that he does strange things to us and calls us to trust him let this mind be in you that was in Christ who could embrace such a downgrade and live in such a moment because he trusted this God. He knew him. And he knew it would be glorious. He knew his life would be glorious. Can you guys run that video? All right.
we never would have scripted such a thing. If we needed to be saved and we came up with a plan, it certainly would not have looked like this one. And then again, we are not you. And Lord, that in lies the trouble for us. How often we are seeking to make you do things the way we would do them. To do great things at a great time in a great way with the definitions of what we are impressed with. And you are so different than that. So Lord, as we remember this season, Lord, as we take time in the weeks to come to draw our attention to this story in Bethlehem, these familiar people of Mary and Joseph, shepherds, wise men. Lord, draw our attention to the uniqueness of who you are and the way that you are and 
the ministry that we need from you. Lord, we are called to walk with you and, and there's not a person that you have called in which you are not doing something marvelous with our lives, something glorious, something for which you have fulfilled your purpose through us to bring glory to your name. And yet, Lord, we miss it so often and we are standing in the complaint line and we are angry about our lives. Lord, this morning, would you lift our eyes and turn our attention away from what this world has called great, away from these expectations, the sense of deserving that we have about our own lives. And may we cling to, maybe have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant being found, born in the image of man humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, that, that is where our hope has come from. And that is where our hope is, Lord. You are still that God and we welcome having that mind in us that was also in your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Bless you guys. We'll see you tonight. If we don't see you tonight, we hope we'll see you Tuesday night.